Well, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me. <clears throat> In fact, I'm going you may want to just kind of dog ear or flag three passages that we'll read, and then we'll continue in our study called 52 Weeks in the Word, which I've intended to just sort of be an overview of the Bible, to just sort of encourage you as we've uh, sort of tried to kick off the year reading through the Bible. Many of you following along the reading plan, and if you are, you know that uh, we've have crossed the threshold into uh, uncharted territory, the book of Leviticus. Can I get a witness? And so uh, Luke 24, verse 27 is the first uh, verse that I want you to look at. <clears throat> and then Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4. We'll read that one in a moment. And then the final passage is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. So Luke 24, 27, Romans 15, verse 4, and 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. And I'll read that in just a second. Now I'm just going to go ahead and make a confession tonight. I do not know my way around the kitchen. Now I know, I have a general, uh, you know, idea of where things are. But my wife always seems like she has to come behind. If I unload the dishwasher and I've put all of the different pieces of Tupperware and plates and cups and silverware and all these various spots. Inevitably, Anita, she'll have to look for something. She knows if I've unloaded the dishwasher, she's like, oh, it's going to take me twice as long to find it. I, I tend to find a spot and put it, you know, wherever it fits. Um, but there is a method I have discovered. And we've been married 21 years and I still have not figured out what that method is. But I'm trying. I really am learning. But some of you may sort of feel like that when it comes to reading the Bible. Uh, you know that there's a gourmet feast to be had, uh, to feast upon the riches of God's Word, but you may not necessarily know how to begin, where to begin. Uh, you hear of the life-changing testimony of so many, of how their time in the Word has been beneficial and life-changing. And yet, if you would just be honest, you kind of feel like you're lost. You don't know your way around the kitchen. And so what I really hope to kind of do on Wednesday nights is to just sort of maybe give you kind of an idea as to where things may be in the kitchen so that you can sit at the table and enjoy a feast, the feast of riches that we know that are here in God's own word. And a lot of folks, they begin reading the Bible, and sometimes they do get to Leviticus or other passages, and they just they get discouraged for whatever reason. Life gets busy, and, and we've all been there. And then if you're following along on a plan and you get behind, you wonder, I don't think I can ever catch up. And so you're discouraged, and you just quit altogether. But let me just remind you, and I think it's important to remind us from time to time, that the goal is not just simply reading through a plan so that we can sort of put a check mark by a particular day's reading. The goal is time with the Lord. The goal of spending time in the Word of God is that we might know the God of the Word. And so that's the big picture that we've got to keep in mind. And if we keep that in mind, I think that it will really encourage us and, and keep us from getting uh, discouraged. And you know the thing is, Aren't you glad that for the Christian, every day is a brand new beginning? That's the gospel. And so you feel maybe overwhelmed. You feel ashamed because I've not been able to read through the Bible or this, that, and the other. Listen, don't be ashamed. But realize that every day is a brand new beginning because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful for God's grace and for the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, I introduced a subject that was known as the canonicity of Scripture. And that's a big word, but that word just simply refers to the overall arrangement of the books of the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible, and how do we know that each book, you know, is authoritative and belongs in the canon of Scripture? And so that word canonicity just simply refers to the list of authoritative books that we have. And so I sort of just introduced that topic last Wednesday night in sort of a broad way, and tonight, what I want to do is get a little bit more specific 
uh, and just focus in on the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament canon. Now you perhaps are wondering why I had you turn to some New Testament verses if tonight we're going to talk about the Old Testament canon. Well, the reason for that is because these verses that we're going to look at in the New Testament are verses that explain to us really the authority and, and the canonicity of the Old Testament. And so look at that very first verse that I had you turn to in Luke 24, verse 27. Now, the greater context of this verse is those two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them and is walking down the road with them, has a conversation. They're sad because of everything that's transpired in Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Jesus. They don't realize that it's the risen Jesus that's walking down the road having a conversation with them. And so Jesus uh, basically tells them, in, along about verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now here's verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is going to the Old Testament, and this is just sort of a summary way of referring to what we know as the entirety of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, all of the Old Testament points to me. And can you imagine what that conversation might have consisted of as Jesus is explaining to those discouraged disciples uh, from Moses and the law and the prophets how ultimately the Old Testament scriptures point us to the hope that we have in the Messiah and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Isn't that just a wonderful thought? So right there from the Lord's own mouth is this testimony that the Old Testament is important because it's all about him. It points us to faith in him. Now, that second verse that I had you turn to in Romans chapter 15, verse number 4, the Apostle Paul says something very similar. And Paul says this concerning the Old Testament scriptures. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So here, the scripture is saying that we have the testimony and the record of what's happened in generations long past, preserved in the canon of scripture. It's for our spiritual benefit. So the struggles that we read about in the, life, the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of that was written for our encouragement so that we, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. So in other words, I'm, I'm, I'm able to look at the faithfulness of God in Abraham's life and how even against all odds, Abraham places his faith and his trust and his confidence in God and, and God fulfills the promise that he makes to Abraham. And I'm able to look back at that and find encouragement in my own life that points me to Christ and points me to place all of my hope and my confidence in God. And then the third passage that I want you to look at is 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Peter says this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the, the Greek language that he uses there in verse 21, carried along by the Holy Spirit, uh, it was the same terminology that was often descriptive of a ship upon the sea. As, as the winds and the sail of that ship would guide that ship into a particular port, of destination. That's kind of the idea here that's being conveyed. That's the wind of God's Spirit that carried along the biblical writers in that what they wrote is inspired, authoritative, inerrant scripture. 
So when you take just these three passages of Scripture and just sort of compare them with each other, here's what we come to know about the Old Testament. First, it points me to Christ so that all of of the, the law and the prophets, ultimately, the point of it is to point me to faith in Jesus Christ, God's Messiah. And everything in the Old Testament is beneficial to me spiritually because Again, that passage in Romans 15 verse 4 says the things that were written in former times were written for my encouragement so that through patience and endurance I can have comfort and and, and encouragement in my own experience. And then here the biblical writer is saying that all scripture, again it's just what Paul says to Timothy, it's given by inspiration of God. Men of God wrote as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So that means that scripture is authoritative, and that includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, why am I telling you all of that? Well, because I think that a lot of people approach the Old Testament as if the Old Testament is no longer the authority that it was in the past. We're New Testament Christians, and so really the Old Testament doesn't really have anything for the New Testament people of God. I'm going to show you tonight how that's not the case, because We couldn't really understand the New Testament were it not for the Old Testament. And were it not for the New Testament, the Old Testament would not be complete. And so that's why we have this complete revelation of God in both Testaments. Okay? So, remember last week I sort of used this illustration of a chain. And when you think about the chain of communication in which God has communicated to humanity, uh, you've got several links in this chain. And the first link, uh, we looked at this several Wednesday nights ago. It's, it's the link known as revelation. God has revealed himself both in a general way and in a specific way here in the pages of Scripture. The second link in that chain is inspiration. That is, inspiration means breathed out. So that the word of God is breathed out. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's theonoustos. It's God breathed. And so this issue of inspiration gets to the question, who is the author of the Bible? Yes, there's more than 40 different human authors, but there is ultimately one author, and that's the Holy Spirit. And then the third link in the chain is what we're dealing with now. It's this link known as canonization or canonicity. And so the canon then, this is the list of all of those books that belong in the Bible, those that are recognized in both Old and New Testaments. So that that word canon comes from the ancient world and basically means rule or standard. That's what that word means. It comes from a Greek term that means rule. Think about a measuring tape or a ruler That's that's the idea that's being conveyed behind that word. And so again, you think about the comment that Moses makes, Deuteronomy 32, verse 46, where he tells Israel, take to heart all the words of the Lord. Be careful to do all the words of this law. Uh, To the degree that to add to or to subtract from those words that God has revealed would be to lead God's people into disobedience. And so, again, God is communicating to us supernaturally that he's revealed himself, his word is inspired, and even the canonicity of the Bible is something that is supernatural in that God has preserved it for future generations. And it's really a remarkable thing when you think about it. And you say, okay, well, why is this such a big issue? Well, here's the deal. Because if we are to trust and obey God absolutely then you and I need to have a collection of words that we are certain are God's own words to us. And aren't you grateful that you know that that's what you have in the Bible? Here we have the collection of God's words to us as humanity. And so over time then, canon came to refer to a catalog or list, authoritative list of books accepted as holy scripture so generally defined that's how that word canon um, it's what it means just an authoritative list of books 
And so that means there are 39 in the Old Testament, Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. Okay, and so one issue that we dealt with last Wednesday night was this issue, who decided that these books were to be in the canon? Who was it that, because a lot of critics of Christianity sometimes will say, well, you know that the church, the church is the one that really chose which books were in the Bible and which books were not. Because there were a lot of other false gospels that were being circulated and Gnostic writings and those kinds of things. But the person who would make that statement fails to understand church history and and really the way that God has preserved his word. Because the church at times in the past, especially in the earliest centuries of Christianity, they would have to convene certain councils not to determine which books were authoritative or not, but to just simply recognize those books that were already in circulation and were inspired and authoritative. And the reason that they would do that was because there were so many of these false Gnostic teachings and ideas that were circulating throughout the the first, um, second, third century world. Okay, so it's not that the church decides the canon. No, the church discerned. Because remember those, those, those criteria that we mentioned last week. There were you know, three or four um, points of criteria or litmus test that were applied to any of these particular writings, those which were inspired. What were those um, criteria? Well, was it written by a prophet or an apostle? Because the books that we have in the Bible bear the stamp of divine authorship as God communicates his word through his prophet or, in the New Testament, apostle. And there are certain books written by those that perhaps were not apostles. But the second criteria, were they a close associate of the apostles? For example, Mark, Mark's gospel. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. Mark was not an apostle. But we know that Mark was a close associate of both the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter. So that most Bible teachers believe that Mark writes his gospel from the perspective of the apostle Peter. Luke is someone else who was not an apostle. But Luke was a travel companion of the apostle Paul. And so Luke writes both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, volume one and volume two of Luke's works. And one thing interesting about Luke is that here this, this, this guy was a brilliant mind. He was a doctor and a historian, and he's a travel companion of the apostle Paul. And so God uses Luke, who's a close associate of the apostles, and what he writes is the inspired account of Jesus' life and then the life of the early church. Another criteria is, does it tell the truth about God? Is it in keeping with what has already been revealed about God? Uh, Does it demonstrate the power of God to affect change in a person's life? Because let me tell you, the word of God is life-changing. It will absolutely change. By the way, even when you don't necessarily understand sometimes when you're reading and you're wrestling with the passage of Scripture, you may be tempted to want to skip over Leviticus as you're studying the Bible. Can I just encourage you? You can trust that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is going to use His Word in your life. Even the, even the parts of God's Word that you may not necessarily think are as valuable as those other parts. And so these are just some of the criteria that we looked at and dealt with that last week. All right, now think about this. Here's a great statement by J.I. Packer, who's a theologian. But J.I. Packer said this about the canon. The church no more gave us the canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And in a similar way, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. So Isaac Newton, he didn't come up with the law of gravity, did he? He simply, what? Discovered it, right? It was there long before he even made the discovery. And so the same thing applies to these books which make up the canon, both of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And so the church doesn't determine the canon. The church discerns it. And so that's critical that you understand that. Okay? Now, here's what I want to do tonight. I just want us to look at the Old Testament canon. And I want to do it from three different dimensions. I want to look at the Old Testament, sort of a big picture overview. I've got not even 30 minutes to do it. So pray for me, brethren. But we'll, we'll look at it from a literary angle. And we'll sort of consider how the Old Testament is made up of various types of genre, literary genre. It's important you know that because you'll understand that there's a difference from what you read in Proverbs as opposed to those historical narrative portions that maybe you read in First or Second Samuel. So you've got to understand the difference between the literary genre. There's a variety of genre represented in Scripture. And then we'll look at the historical dimension in that what we find in the Old Testament is real history most of us probably have little knowledge as to the history of the Old Testament how it all ties together and it may be sort of fragmented in in our minds as we try to piece it together but but you need to realize that this is this is real history that we're talking about not mythological it's not Uh, just fanciful story but this is real history and then we'll look at the theological dimension the book was not just written to be gawked at over its literary genre or it wasn't simply written to tell us about history you know it's not a science book for that matter it's not a history book for that matter it contains all of that and is in keeping with true science and true history but it's written to demonstrate God in the middle of history So that what we read is the activity of God who is acting upon the stage of human history to achieve his own purposes. And so this is really wonderful. Okay, so if you think about the literary dimension, most of your Bibles, the table of contents sort of lay out the various categories of the Old Testament. You've got the first five books of Moses known as the Pentateuch. Five books basically is what that means. Uh, the five books of law, uh, that's followed by, by history, books that are classified as far as history is concerned. And then you've got the prophecy, you've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. And you say, well, what's the difference? The major, are they more important than the minor prophets? No, they just weren't as long-winded. <laughs> the minor prophets just were relatively short compared to their, the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they you know, they're long-winded preachers, right? But the minor prophets, not as much. And then you've got poetry. You've got the wonderful psalms, 150 psalms, which are songs of worship and prayers that were often put to music in, in the Old Testament, you know, during the, the, wor- the worship of God's people. Uh, You find genealogies at various points in the Old Testament. Genealogies are there for a purpose. I know we don't think that they're inspired, but they are. I'm telling you, I promise you they are. There's a reason that God has included those genealogies in the Bible because it shows how God has been faithful in history to work in the lives of real people just like me and just like you. And, and I think that, honestly, you can find some practical encouragement from just these genealogies when you remember that God knows you individually. Aren't you glad that God knows your name? He knows you. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows your fears. He knows your weaknesses. He knows the challenges that you face every day. None of that takes him by surprise, and he's not indifferent to it all. And, and those genealogy portions of the Bible really remind me of that. And so all of these different literary forms sort of come together in the Old Testament. And knowing the difference between these literary forms, I think it will really affect the way that we read the Old Testament. And it'll just sort of help us sort of navigate our way around in the kitchen a little bit better. For example, we'll read Proverbs a little bit differently than we'll read through First or Second Kings. And so this is, this is just good that we keep all of this in mind. All right, so... Let me just give you five key questions as we sort of approach the Old Testament from these three angles, literary, historical, and theological. All right, question number one, 
I want to answer this question. How is the Old Testament important? Just how exactly is it important? Why is it important that I spend time reading the Old Testament and studying the Old Testament? I'm a New Testament Christian preacher. I'd much rather spend my time reading the Gospel of John. Especially when you compare it to Leviticus. But let me just say this before we keep picking on Leviticus too much. Do you know that there's only one book of the Bible that predominantly God is the one who's doing the speaking? It's the book of Leviticus. That'll change the way that you look at Leviticus when you realize that for the most part, these are the direct words from God to Moses, to Israel, pertaining to the priesthood and the sacrificial system and and, and all of that. So here are some common myths then that we might run up against, uh, sort of causing us to question the importance of the Old Testament. The first myth is this one. Well, you know, the Old Testament, really, it's just insignificant. It's just the background material for the much more important New Testament books. Why pay attention to the Old Testament when you can already see what happens in the New Testament? And so some would say that the Old Testament is insignificant. But that's a myth. Because the reality is, it's very significant. Because you would not be able to understand the New. The New would have no basis apart from the old. We wouldn't understand why the New Testament, why the gospel was such good news if the law of God had not done its work of really just showing us how we don't live up to the perfect standard of God's righteousness, nor can we. Myth number two, some would say, well, the Old Testament is irrelevant. It just contains a lot of things that don't seem to relate to our lives anymore. You know, what relevance does an ancient animal slaughtering religion that talks about God in a portable tent, I mean, what does that have, you know, what bearing does that have for those of us who are living in the 21st century world? Well, the reality has everything to do with it because it helps us understand the incarnation, why God became a man, why Christ died on the cross, what it means that he is our sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world, what it means that he's our great high priest who ushers us into the presence of God because we learn in the New Testament that all of those shadows in the Old Testament, like the Passover lamb, the priesthood, even the tabernacle itself, all of that points me to Jesus Christ. He's the sacrifice, he's the priest, and he's the sanctuary. Isn't that an amazing thing? Myth number three, some would say, well, the Old Testament is inconsistent. It just seems to be disconnected from Christianity as a whole. I mean, you see this wonderful God of grace and mercy in the New Testament, but some people want to just say, well, the Old Testament, God is sort of a vengeful God, an angry deity that has to be satisfied, that it just never satisfied. But it's interesting to me that those who try to make that argument purposefully ignore the grace of God, which is clearly on display in many great acts of grace and mercy in the Old Testament, the Exodus being the key event that demonstrates his grace and mercy. And at the same time, they minimize the wrath of God that's clearly on display in the New Testament. I mean, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, Uh, that Jesus Christ, when he comes back, he's coming back in vengeance. So people can oftentimes pick and choose on the basis of their own personal preference, but that's not how we ought to approach the Word of God. The Word of God is not inconsistent, but it's very consistent. And then myth number four, someone says, well, the Old Testament is just incomprehensible. It just doesn't make sense. leads to boredom. It's just plain hard to understand. There are things I don't understand. For example, I don't understand, I read 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, where Elisha, he's going up to Bethel. As he's going down the road, there are these boys that come out of town and they jeer him and they say, Get out of here, Baldy. Get out of here, Baldy. And all of a sudden, these two she-bears come and maul the boys to pieces. Someone reads that and says, What in the world is the lesson here? Don't make fun of people who ain't got hair, I guess. I don't know, but... Again, the Bible, and here's something else too that people often fail to make a distinction between what the Bible uh, reports and what it endorses. 
Don't miss that. Yeah, the Old Testament, you, you read of cases like Solomon who has, who's multiplied wives for himself. But because Solomon does that in the Old Testament, does that mean that the Bible is saying that it, polygamy is okay? No, the Bible actually says the opposite. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman. We see that illustrated in creation itself. But the Bible is very honest in what it reports. It doesn't gloss over those who are its main characters. It shows you the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in that way, we know that the Bible is telling us the truth because it doesn't flatter us. If it were written strictly by humanity, it would be something that flatters humanity. But it doesn't flatter us. It shows us our great need for a Savior. And so that's how we know that it has the supernatural authoritative quality where the Holy Spirit has inspired it. So here's the truth then. Here's why the Old Testament is important. Because really it's invaluable. It's indispensable. You can't dispense with the Old Testament. You can't unhitch the new from the Old Testament. Because you wouldn't understand the death and the resurrection of Jesus if you didn't really understand it in light of the Old Testament promises. And the law of God. And the holiness of God that's clearly set forth. And so you see that the Old Testament, really from beginning to end, there's no resolution. And that resolution only is found in the fulfillment in Jesus Christ in the new. Okay, so that's why the Old Testament is very important. Now, a second thing that I want to ask and then attempt to answer is this question. How did the Old Testament begin? How did it begin? Well, if we go all the way back to where it began, who wrote the Old Testament? You know, the very first writer of Scripture may very well have been the Lord God himself. Have you ever thought about this? Because one of the earliest mentions of written revelation in Scripture was when the finger of God etched the Ten Commandments for Moses. So that is the first evidence of the written word of God perhaps comes from the finger of God himself upon those stone tablets given to Moses and then the people. And so from that point on, the responsibility for recording all the words that God had for his people, it squarely fell on the shoulders of Moses. And so it was Moses who kept the record, the written record of God's words and then after Moses, God raises up a succession of prophets. In fact, that's, that's fulfillment of, of promise. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I want you to see what God promises that he's going to do. Over the course of redemptive history, again, Moses is speaking to the people before they enter the promised land. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18 Moses tells the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it's to him you shall listen. So, so Moses is saying God is going to act supernaturally here. God is going to raise up a prophet for each generation to whom God will reveal his word and then they'll be responsible for that written record, which again, it's under the inspiration of God's own spirit. It's to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And then Moses says in verse 17, the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name. Now listen to this. God says, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Whew. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So God is clear here. He's telling his people, I'm going to raise up a prophet. And I'm going to reveal my word to that prophet. And that prophet's going to speak my word. And that word's going to be preserved. And then ultimately this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you think about how uh, Hebrews begins. The opening statements of the book of Hebrews. God at various times and various ways in the past spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So there's going to be this succession of prophetic revelation that's going to lead all the way up to the Messiah. And then those that the Messiah himself calls to himself and commissions as apostles. And with the death of the apostles, you're going to have the close of the canon. See how that works. So that we have a complete, full revelation from God who has spoken in history. Now that's great. And so again, we, we, we have history to, to, to go back to. We can see God has just been faithful through every passing generation. That's why Jesus could say this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away because the word of God is eternal. And though Satan has tried to erase it and eradicate it, and sinful man has tried to stop up his ears to it, the word of God cannot be broken. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is established in the heavens. And that's a promise. And so here you have in the Old Testament this divinely inspired history of the people of God, the very ones that God chose to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus into the world. And so again, here, here's that historical slant then. You consider the various literary distinctions in the Old Testament, but that history is very, God is acting upon the stage of history because history is his story. He's taking us somewhere. And one day history is going to culminate with the return of his son to earth. And you know what? We're one day closer than we were this time yesterday. You paying attention to the news and paying attention to what's happening in the world? I don't know about you, but man, I'm, I, I'm getting rapture ready. And the more that brothers and sisters among us depart from here one at a time, boy, that just gets hard, doesn't it? I just assume the Lord come for all of us <laughs> and we all go together. But history's moving. It's moving toward the goal, the telos, the goal that God has in mind. Well, let me get to a third question, and it's this one. How was the Old Testament written? Well, short answer, it was transmitted through scribes. Sometimes I think the scribes, we, we, we don't talk about the, the, the importance of scribes in the life of God's people in the Old Testament, but the scribes were very important. They were very meticulous with the way that they, they preserved and passed down the written record of testimony. I mean, they were really meticulous about it. I mean, I'm encouraged when I think about this part of the history of how God's word has been preserved because it tells me that over the centuries there were thousands of people who have given their lives to make sure that the Bible passes down from one generation to another. I mean, this was before there were word processors. I mean, my computer... I'm so thankful for this tool that I have, and I'm able to have all of my sermon notes and all that kind of stuff. It's just technology that I take for granted. The scribe was the word processor in the Old Testament. He didn't have software. You know, he couldn't run down to the local staples and buy a ream of paper and a printer and that kind of thing. No, he had to... He had to be very meticulous in the way that he hand-wrote those, those ancient documents from generation to generation. And so here's the question. How did Moses or any of the other prophets, for that matter, how did they actually write down the words that God revealed? Well, you may find this interesting, but the Old Testament writers really possessed a, a variety of writing tools. And so for starters, stone was one of the earliest 
writing surfaces, believe it or not, stone slabs that were coated with plaster. And then you had clay tablets that were, were another means of being able to communicate. Uh, then there was a wooden tablet that was covered in wax. Think of that as the original iPad. <laughs> Papyrus. Papyrus uh, served as an ancient form of paper originating with the ancient Egyptians. And so our word paper comes from that word papyrus, which was basically made by needlepoint. Um, this plant that grew on the marshes of the Nile River Bank, they could uh, sort of mash it up into this, just this mesh. When it dried, they could, they could connect it by strips. And so it sort of served as an ancient form of paper and then you had leather, and the stretching of leather um, in what was known as parchment. And so it's amazing, you know, what our forebears, what they had. They, they made the, the best use of what they had. We take it for granted now that we can just send a quick text message and communicate with someone. or We can take notes tonight, you know, with my pen and my study guide and all of that. Aren't you grateful for modern technology and convenience? I'm so thankful. If we began losing some of these modern conveniences, I mean, we, you ask our kids, where does bread come from? They say, well, it comes from the store. <laughs> where does green beans come from? Well, it comes from the store. Our kids know that it comes from Mama and Papa's garden. <laughs> you know, so, man, you imagine where we would be as a society if we had to go back to the days of gardening and riding on parchments and... <laughs> Oh, mercy, I'd hate to, have to think I'd had to go through that to write my sermon notes down. I've got some pictures here I'll show you. Here's, here's sort of a, a, part, uh, um, a papyrus scroll. That's what that would have looked like. And then just this background is sort of um, a close-up shot of what perhaps um, parchment would have looked like. Stretched thin, leather that was stretched thin. That could be rolled up, that could be sewn together, bound in codex form, which was sort of an ancient book. And then as far as the stylus, the pens, the writing utensils, you had sort of just various stylus that would be used with an inkwell to be able to, to write upon, whether it was parchment or papyrus. No pentail factory. <laughs> No bic. I mean, it was leather quill or stylus or brush that, you know, a reed that would have sort of been split at the end to create just a little teeny tiny brush that could be dipped in ink and then they could write upon these ancient writing materials. In fact, you know that the scribes of the Old Testament were so meticulous with detail that when they would write the, the covenant name of God, for example, do you know that they would, they would retire the stylus or the quill. They would bathe before they wrote the name. They would bathe after they wrote the name. That's the detail with which so many of these Old Testament scribes, I mean, they were clear that they recognized that this task of preserving this word from one generation to the next was so, so very important. And then that brings up a fourth question, and it's this. How was the Old Testament preserved by these scribes? God revealed his word to a succession of prophets who wrote it down, beginning with Moses. They wrote many of these words in Hebrew on parchments. Another good question to consider at this point is preservation. The earliest copies of Scripture are known as the autographs. And you know that we don't have the original autographs. We have copies many of which were hundreds of years removed from the fact in which those original autographs were written. But when you understand something about the Hebrew mind and the Eastern mind, for that matter, and the meticulous detail that those scribes went through to record word for word verbatim what those documents contained, they didn't put a big deal, as, you know, as, as we Westerners kind of do, on holding on to our stuff <laughs> because the copy was just as good as what they had because you think about how papyrus wears out parchment wears out and so there was this constant need for these scribes to keep preserving and writing 
these, these scriptures down. Now I'm going to go into detail about this. But the version of the Old Testament text that we have that was the oldest um, until 1947 was the Masoretic text which was the, Maser, the, Maserite, the, uh, the Masoretic text basically was around uh, 1000 A.D., if I might, my mind sort of serves me correctly. But in 1947, there were a couple of teenage boys who were goat herders. They had a goat get away from them near the Dead Sea. And in particular, in an area known as Qumran, and as they were just doing what teenage boys tend to do, they were roughhousing, they were throwing rocks, they threw a rock into a cave, and they heard something shatter. And it really caused them to stop and investigate. And so upon further investigation, what they discovered in those caves in 1947, it's what you and I now know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there were roughly 11 caves in which there were more than 900 different ancient manuscripts that were kept that date back to the Qumran, um, uh, that community of, of uh, the Essenes who were Jews living outside of Jerusalem, Judea. What we know about the Essenes, they basically felt like everybody else was liberal in Jerusalem and so they sort of had their own community going all the way back to about 300 to 250 B.C., now, let me tell you why this is so important, because the oldest manuscript that we now have, for example, of the scroll of Isaiah comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls that was discovered in, in Qumran in one of these caves. And it's absolutely fascinating when you think about this. Now, I've got a copy of this. I'm going to show you. This is a picture. Actually, I'm going to pass it around. I know we probably ain't got time to get to everybody, but y'all can sort of pass it around and let everybody sort of see it. But this is a picture of the great scroll of Isaiah that was discovered at Qumran in 1947. The complete book of Isaiah dated somewhere around 250 B.C. Now keep in mind, prior to 1947, the oldest copy of anything um, Old Testament uh, would have been roughly 1000 A.D., the Masoretic text. So that when this discovery was made, here you have roughly a document that's 1,200 years older than what was the oldest at that particular point in time. And so when they put side by side the scroll of Isaiah and compared it to what the Masoretic text of Isaiah said, do you know that it was nearly identical? And you say, what's the big deal about that, preacher? I'll tell you why. It's evidence that God has preserved his word over the centuries. And it's evidence that you and I can place our confidence in God to preserve the written record of his word. This is absolutely a remarkable find. Again, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will never pass away. So let liberal scholarship say what it wants to say. There are always going to be those who are deniers. But listen, when you consider the canon of the Old Testament, the canon of the New Testament, when you consider the body of manuscript evidence that we have for both Old and New Testament, folks, there is no other book from antiquity that even begins to come close to compare with the overwhelming evidence that we have from history and archaeology of the preservation of the Bible. And so you keep that in mind. Now, it's not man that's done this. God has used human instruments over the centuries, scribes, his prophets, the apostles, but God has supernaturally preserved his word so that you can have confidence when you get up in the morning and you spend time with God in his word. You know that you have the word from God. And as such, it's authoritative and life-changing. There's a picture of those caves in Qumran. Now, could you imagine your goat getting loose right there and you crawling down in one of those caves to have to find it? <laughs> oh. And there's a bigger picture. What's interesting is that uh, great scroll of Isaiah that's 
being passed around. That's just a portion of it. But the complete text, it's 24 feet long. Leather strips sewn together. It's 11 inches high. 54 columns of text. And that piece that's circulating right there, this middle table right here, it's actually um, a portion that, that stretches from Isaiah 52 through chapter 55. And so there you see in Hebrew that great servant song and prophecy of the suffering servant fulfilled in the death of the Lord Jesus. Last thing I'll mention and then I'm done. The Old Testament, how is it arranged? Now you've got the literary arrangement there in the table of contents in your own Bible and that's fine. But I want to give you just a simple way to remember here's how the Old Testament sort of is arranged. Think about the story of God's people first of all. You look at the first 17 books of the Old Testament, it largely tells the story of God's people. From creation all the way to captivity and then their return from captivity. That's the story as far as the history is concerned in the Old Testament. God's acting upon the stage of history. He's chosen Israel. He's going to bring blessing to the world through Abraham's seed that's fulfilled in Christ. And then you've got the writings of God's people. You think about these being books such as Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. What we would call poetry. Those writings of God's people. This is really the response of God's people to their greater story of what God's doing in their midst. And then you've got the prophets from among God's people. Both major prophets, minor prophets. Major prophets, the longer prophet, prophetic books, minor prophets, those 12 shorter books. So that's just sort of the Old Testament then in a nutshell. And I don't know about you, but folks, I love, I love my Bible. I'm so thankful that God has given us an accurate record of what he's done in history. And it's only by his grace that you and I have a place at the table. And isn't he worthy of worship tonight? Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for this bountiful feast that you've put before us in the pages of your word. Jesus, he's quoting from Deuteronomy there in that temptation narrative when he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lord, if that's the case, then that means you're going to preserve that word for our hungry souls. And so thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the gospel of Jesus and how the Old Testament canon merely points us forward to Christ and all that he's accomplished. And Lord, I thank you for the strength that you supply and the comfort that you are through the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we need wisdom. As we live in a culture, Lord, that's confused and growing more confused by the day, Lord, it's the entrance of your words brings light. Your word, O oh Lord, is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And so, God, give us the wisdom we need as we go from here throughout the remainder of the week. Issues that perhaps are going on in each person's heart and life, Lord, may we commit those to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you folks. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week ahead.